The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we just we read this story that says that when anyone heard it, they were filled with a kind of holy reverence. So we don't want to run away from that in this moment. We want to see your power when your presence comes. We want to be called to repentance. And so, Lord, come now. Encourage us. Refine us. Show us yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that we keep talking about in in Acts, we're going to see so strongly in this passage, is our identity and our kind of itinerary, our plan, our mission, as this people who are radically oriented around King Jesus above all other allegiances. And understanding what the Word says about us helps us understand why this radical orientation, why this radical mission. If we were to look throughout the Bible, one of the major themes we see, one of my favorite themes of the Bible, is God with us. God with us. So we have a God who has created, and not only created, but has communicated and has sought to dwell with his people. He is unlike any other God of any other religion. This has always happened through a covenant. So in a covenant, you have these three basic elements. You have the Lord's presence, the Lord's place, and the Lord's people, and he is with his people in this place. So we see God with his people in the garden at the beginning of creation. Then we see sin enter the world and God cover them with the first blood sacrifice, setting this theme that God is going to keep pursuing his people so that he can be with his people. And then we see these awesome displays of God with us through sacrifices in both the tabernacle as Israel wandered and then in the temple as Israel settled. And then we see Jesus come on the scene as the new temple of God. He says that about himself. The very name Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. He rises again from the dead. He ascends to the throne and promises to send the Holy Spirit to dwell among his people. Yes, that he will be with us, even in us, until the day that we're with him in glory. And then, because of that, the New Testament shows us that the blood-bought people of God are now the new temple of God, both individually and collectively. So listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, where it talks about how we're individually the temple of God. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body, because that's what temples are for, to worship God. Or listen to how Paul speaks to the whole church in Ephesians 2, 
verses 20 to 22. He says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, all of us, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are a a temple made up of temples. So what happens in a temple? Worship. (laughs) What happens in a temple? God dwells with his people and his people are radically oriented around his holiness through sacrifice. And that's who we are. That's who we're meant to be in this day and age. We live in this holy, sanctified, moving, living, breathing place that by the sacrifice of Christ has 24-7 access to the heavenly, holy of holies. Meant to come back into fellowship and worship of our King in every nook and in every cranny of our lives. So it happened in a temple. So this is both an encouragement to us and an exhortation. So the encouragement to us is that we have a God who has been always pursuing his people so that he could dwell with his people and be glorified in his people. The theme of the Bible is God with us and that meant God was going to have to chase down sinners by his grace to make a way to dwell with them. I was trying to think of how to just talk about that storyline of the Bible for you kids and what I thought of is me and my kids on the playground playing tag. So normally we're kind of fooling around and we're playing half-heartedly a little bit and that all ends, right when I'm in at least, when one of my kids starts to mock me. (laughs) Right, they're kind of over on the side and maybe Stone starts doing a goofy dance He's like, come get me, and in that moment, I'm going to get him, right? Because I'm immature and too competitive. And so in that moment, as I'm playing with him, when he starts to mock me, what I do is I chase them like a fool all over that playground, right? Up and down slides, through tunnels, whatever it takes, until I catch him. And that is what God has done to make a way with us to dwell with us, to pursue us relentlessly, chase us down in our mocking by his grace until he has us. It's an encouragement. What a God we have. And it's an exhortation. If we are the new temple individually and together, then we are living, breathing, moving centers of worship all the time. When that person cuts you off in traffic, right? when you see that Facebook post, When you have that hard family situation, you're still a moving, living, breathing center of worship. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and therefore all of life is meant to be a life for the glory of Jesus. So with that kind of encouragement and exhortation ringing in our ears, let's take a look at this very intense in different kinds of ways passage. So point number one, a temple miracle producing devotion and generosity. Read chapter 4, verses 36 to 37 with me. We're finally getting to Barnabas here. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we get to meet Barnabas for the first time. We're going to see him a lot more in Acts we should all aspire to be such an encouragement to those around us that we get a nickname for it. Be great. Now, why do I say this is a temple miracle? 
What, what do I mean by that? I say that because these verses come after we get a look inside this new temple of God, this new people devoting themselves to the word and prayer and being filled with the presence of God. So listen to chapter 4, verse 31. That comes right before this story. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As God brings his people together, fills them with his spirit, as they're the new temple, coming off of that filling, there was this amazing loosening of their hands on their stuff. This is a word for us in this nation. The the poorest among us are more wealthy than the richest in most places. I'm not denying your struggle if you're struggling with finances right now. I'm just saying that this is a word for us. We are by far the, the wealthiest nation in the world, in the history of the world. And I was looking up updated facts and 6% of Christians even tithe at this point. We need this kind of loosening of our hands. It's not to guilt you, it's to say what kind of freedom was there as the presence of God came upon them and said, don't need my stuff anymore. It's not mine to begin with. Where did that come? It came from a a self-giving love for one another. They saw the the needs. And so when I call this a miracle of devotion and generosity, a temple miracle, I mean that it was a miracle produced by the power and presence of God. This is Jesus doing and teaching among his people, Acts 1.1. This doesn't just happen naturally. This doesn't. This isn't my natural thought. I need to pray, Lord, help me. I want to see needs. I want to be generous. I'm just prone naturally to just keep my stuff. Have a cushion. Right? That's what I want to do. So we see Barnabas here. He owns a piece of land. And for the sake of kingdom of God and as an act of worship, he lays it at the apostles' feet. Why does he do that? He's saying... Use it for the sake of Jesus. Whatever you need it for, use it for whatever is necessary for the kingdom. It's no longer mine. It never was. It belongs to him. Now notice here, there's no forced, weird, cultish, communal thing going on here. It's not the point of this text. Barnabas owns this land. He's not forced to buy into the community. Right? This isn't some buy-in club. He simply is moved by the power and presence of God to sell this field and pour out generosity. Kids, do you know who this is supposed to remind us of when we see Barnabas and we see these pictures? It's supposed to remind us of Jesus. Right? Jesus was rich in heaven with his father and he became poor to earth to save us from our sins. And here Barnabas is giving up his riches to meet the needs of others. The point is if we trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to work in us to make us like Jesus. This act of Barnabas is a temple miracle of devotion to King Jesus and generosity in following in the footsteps of Jesus. This isn't by his own doing. This isn't forced or coerced. It's just an act of worship produced by the presence of God among his 
people, the new temple. Point number two, a temple miracle opposing deception and greed. So we heard verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 read, and what we'll see is one story with two very similar parts. Both are tragic. We find out that Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, had sold a field and then brought some of the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We find out in verses 1 to 2 that he and his wife together decided to try to hold back some of the proceeds while acting as if they were giving all they had. Just very clear in the narrative. That's what's going on. Here's Barnabas. Here's Ananias and Sapphira. Here's the contrast of what's happening. Again, notice, this is not some weird communal act. That's not what's expected. Peter says, listen, the field belonged to you when you sold it. The proceeds were all yours to do with whatever you wanted. So we're not taking up an offering after the sermon. <laughs> Don't think, oh, I should have given more. That's not the point of this text. The issue here is not that they didn't give all of the proceeds. That would have been fine, I think. The issue here is that they were seeking to lie to God and to seek to gain praise and acclaim by their lying. This is high-handed, intentional deception of the living God. In verse 3, Peter, by divine knowledge of the Spirit, calls out the lie. Peter says that Satan filled his heart. So again, here we see this obvious play on words. We saw in verse 31, the filling of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, when Peter preached, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, when Peter's talking to the rulers, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts uses this word filling to talk about kind of a powerful influence that leads to action. Normally, the Holy Spirit for good works. If you go to Luke chapter 22, what you'll see there with kind of demonic possession is an entering. Here we see a filling, and most commentators think that word is used on purpose because these people are believers, part of the community. We shouldn't assume, right, we'd like to make this story way more comfortable if we would just assume that they're unbelievers. I'm not saying I'm certain, but everyone I've read says you just can't assume that either way. They're in the church. They're part of this community we just saw in verses 32 to 35 looked like this ideal, perfect place. But notice two things about this demonic, deceptive act. First, notice that the reason this couple will not get away with this deception is because the Holy Spirit is God. And I make that point because it is good for us to remember and tremble about who it is that dwells inside of us. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. Look at verse 3. Peter says, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, You have not lied to men, but to God. Connection, the Holy Spirit is God. Which means you can't outsmart him or outwit him. He sees everything. Yes, the presence of God is a sweet privilege, and yet it's also a bit of a sobering prospect. Where there is sin and deception in our lives, the Holy Spirit sees it because he's God. 
We can't deceive him. He will not be mocked. He sees our intentional deception in our religious games. He sees it all. That's number one, the Holy Spirit's God. Number two about this act, notice that the work of Satan does not excuse the responsibility of sin. Right? You can't just say the devil made me do it and that means that you're not responsible. Peter says in verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Yes, Satan was working. Yes, the flesh of Ananias was working. So instead of a, a holy partnership with our sanctified, redeemed self and the Holy Spirit, that kind of filling, what we get here is this unholy, wicked partnership of his own selfish desires and the satanic influence here. And as he hears these words, it said he breathes his last. He dies immediately. He's carried out and he's buried. And rightly, fear comes upon the people. And what other emotion could happen in that moment? Just try to put myself in these stories as I walk through narratives. And here you are, miracles have happened. Look at miracles of healing. Everyone's giving away their stuff. Look, at here's someone else. They're going to give proceeds. And you hear Peter proclaim this, and he falls down, and he just dies, and he's, he's carried out. Then in verses 7 to 11, his wife Sapphira comes on the scene, and she hasn't heard what's happened. Peter gives her a chance to come clean, I think. And she lies, and he pronounces the same judgment, and then she dies, and she's carried out. And it says, great fear comes upon the whole church. In all who hear of it. And I call this a temple miracle again. And it's a horrifying miracle, but I think it is a temple miracle. Our God is holy. And his powerful presence is certainly full of joy in many ways. But it can be equally terrifying when we live in unrepentance and act as if he can't see our intentional deceitfulness. He, he won't. He won't let his temple be polluted with false motives which seek to make a name for themselves and are actually full of greedy intentions. I want to confirm for you my suspicion that this is a temple miracle by taking you to another place in the Old Testament. Maybe you already have it ringing in your ears. But in Leviticus 9, if you want to turn there, Aaron makes a sin and a peace offering and the Lord shows he is among his people as fire comes down and consumes the offering and the people fall down in worship. Again, here is this moment where you're going, God is with his people. This is good news. What could go wrong? God is with his people. He received the sacrifice. He accepted it. What could go wrong? That's Leviticus 9. The very end of the chapter, here's the beginning of Leviticus 10. So think of the end of Acts 4, and now the beginning of Acts 5. Here's Leviticus 9 and the beginning of Leviticus 10. Here's Leviticus 10, 1 to 4. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, 
This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And in verse 4, Moses talks to these sons that are related to Aaron. And he says, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. That sounds very familiar. It is a holy privilege to be brought into the presence of God by the sacrifice of Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is a good moment for us as a, as a church, as a body, as the temple. It is easy to look out at the culture and the sin that is so obvious. It is easy to, to look out and to fear the persecution that may come, and that's right. Both of those, hear me say it, both of those are worthy of lament. We should lament a sinful culture that opposes God and his people. I am convinced the category we need in this divisive, outraged, angry age is just lament. It's pouring our hearts out before God for ourselves and our families and our nation. Yet when we only look out there, and when we're distracted with what's out there, it can often lead to turning a blind eye to our own remaining sin, and we forget our own need to tremble before a holy God. We act as if we've arrived, and they need to get where we are, and we forget that we ought to keep trembling before a holy God. In fact, Peter said to us in 1 Peter that judgment begins with the household of God. Now here's the good news for us. I want to insert this here. It's good to have the right theological categories. The good news for us is that the judgment for those in the family of God is never anymore the judgment of condemnation. Never. That has been taken care of for us at the cross. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and yet this passage is a merciful warning to us about the seriousness of sin. Listen to the way Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says it with the story in Acts and the story in Leviticus kind of ringing in your ears. Here's what it says. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he's writing to believers here. You've received a kingdom. It's one that can't be shaken. You'll never be condemned. And then he says, And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's to the church. So here's a question for us today. Where are we toying with sin? Right, I've often heard this illustration from different preachers, but we like to treat sin like it's a little baby lion. <laughs> we can let it live with us and feed it, and it's cute and cuddly at first, and we forget that that thing's going to grow up and consume us. Where are we mocking God openly with our deceit? I don't know where you're doing that, but you know where you're doing that. I know some ways the Lord revealed to me where I was doing that this week. God is merciful and patient. Very merciful and patient. And even if this fate were to come upon his people today, it is not a fate of condemnation, but of preservation. And we could praise him for it. But my prayer all week as I've studied this, tried to just let myself 
feel the, the holy weightiness of it is that today for us would be a day of repentance so that times of refreshing may come for you personally and for us as a blood-bought family of God. Would today, right now, be the moment where you say, no more lying to God or myself. No more. He already knows it anyways, right? If, if this passage teaches us nothing else, that God already knows our hearts anyways. We can't trick him. We can't deceive him. Point number three, the temple miracle showing deliverance and grace. So then you could ask this question, well, maybe I ought to just stay really far away from God. Because <laughs> he sounds a little bit much. I don't think that's the lesson here. I think we simply live lives of repentance and confession and pray for his powerful presence to meet us with healing mercy, healing physically and spiritually. Listen to Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. It's hard to blame them after this last story. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. And people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So this is what the powerful presence of God can do among his people. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And again, when these kinds of passages come, I just have to check my heart as a pastor, as a Christian, and say, do I want this? Do I plead for this? Am I, am I praying for unbelievers in my life? I, a few years ago, I couldn't remember who said it. I tried to find the quote and I couldn't find it, but I remember hearing someone say somewhere, it's like I'm like the author of Hebrews, says somewhere, what if all of your prayers for unbelievers to come to know Jesus were answered today? Who would come to know Jesus? And I just thought, I need to pray for more unbelievers. Wouldn't it be awesome to see a multitude of men and women in these cell suburbs come to know Jesus? Wouldn't that be awesome? Don't we want to see miracles of grace how will this happen? Well, this passage teaches us it's going to happen by the power and presence of the Lord at work in and through his people. It's going to happen through us, the new temple of God. And don't we want to see God work in such a way that many might even be healed of physical ailments if it would bring him glory? It is always up to God who is healed and who is not. We went through that extensively in Acts 3. I'll keep reminding you of it. We already saw there that it is Jesus that gives the gifts of healing to his people in his timing for his purposes. We've already seen throughout the book of Acts and walking through 1 Peter that it is often the will of God for his people to suffer just like Jesus suffered and become like him through their suffering. But we can pray for healing. <laughs> for his powerful presence to come and heal, that he would receive great glory. 
Satan partnered with the sin of Ananias to bring high-handed sin against God so that he was carried out dead. Here we see many carried to the apostles in dependence on God and the spirit partner with God's people to bring about miracles of deliverance and grace coming for the sake of his name. Yes, we know this was quite an exceptional time in church history as the church was born, but we have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same God. We are still the temple of the living God. And God still means to get glory as he meets us with his presence and power. And I think we ought to be expectant and take that very seriously and ask for sweet miracles producing salvation and healing. And I think we ought to take that seriously as we consider the sobering miracles opposing sin and hypocrisy. We ought to tremble. So where does that leave us? Where does, like, how do you do an application to this passage? <laughs> so here's, here's what I did. I want us to be a people trembling with holy fear and holy joy in the presence of God. Not just on Sunday mornings when worship is high and loud and other things fade away, but a, a, a temple of temples. <laughs> that this is how we feel as we walk through life. What this passage did for me is remind me that God is more real than I could ever imagine. He's real. <laughs> He's more real than this podium that I can touch and hit. He's more real than this. The Holy Spirit really is among us, like right now, among us, and He's really in me right now. This is a beautiful privilege purchased by the blood of Jesus. I was just overwhelmed this week. Like, he's in me. Look, the God of the universe is in me. And when we come together on Sunday mornings, like, he shows up. I wish I could have stand up here and tell story after story of the people that come up and pray and the miracles that he does in these times together. Like, if you ever think, why do corporate worship? Man, he does stuff here. And he wants to do stuff in your home, in your small group, and in your family, and at your workplace, because you're a temple there too. God's holy presence is more powerful and beautiful and all-consuming than we could ever wrap our little finite minds around. But it's worth trying. It's worth trying to wrap our minds a little bit. He's not safe. But he is good, and it is good to be with him. We have access to God by the Spirit, and we're told to come boldly before the throne of grace for mercy and grace and well-timed help. Does anybody ever need any well-timed help? I need well-timed help every day, right? I need well-timed help to not wake up full of anxiousness and fear. I need well-timed help to love my kids. I need well-timed help to love my wife, to have wisdom for the counseling session, to want to go to another long elder meeting, right? We need help for these things. We're told to pour out our hearts before him. I was just talking to my kids this morning before I left, and I said, you can talk to God about anything. Go spend some time talking to God. <laughs> and that's an amazing miracle. Like, you can at any time talk to the God of the universe because of the blood of Jesus. Any time. Any place with whatever is going on. 
He already knows our hearts and our sins and our weaknesses. It is a truly joyful thing to have 24-7 access to the Holy of Holies where we will meet a Father with wide open arms, eager to forgive, eager to give us more of His presence and power, and eager to work in us and through us. And it is a terrifying thing if we neglect that and live in high-handed sin. He loves us and his church and his glory too much to just let you stay there. We all have blind spots we need to see. I was just pleading this week to see those. Don't want to live in high-handed sin. I don't want to have blind spots. Show me. So we all have blind spots to see. I don't, I don't think that's what this passage is dealing with. But maybe you're not just pleading for your blind spots today. Maybe you're in this room today or you're watching at home and you have tricked lots of people in your life. And you know it. You've pretended. You've done the good works. You've done the church thing. You've led the small group. And you've been leading a double life. And because the Lord's been merciful, you've now thought that you can get away with it. You've tricked him. You've convinced yourself maybe that he doesn't see your sin, or maybe it's not that big of a deal because he hasn't done anything about it yet. Maybe you can deal with it tomorrow or the next day. Every once in a while it kind of pops back up and you feel the guilt and the shame. You think, I should really deal with this. You turn on the TV or get on something else and you just try to forget about it and you, I'll deal with it later. And we think we can keep hiding. And this passage teaches us we cannot. I cannot. And so I've been stra- praying for this very strange thing that only the presence of God can make happen at the same time. This holy joy and this holy trembling, this entering boldly into the presence of God and yet trembling before the presence of God in our high-handed sin. We want to be a people that tremble before Him with a holy fear and a holy joy because we realize that He's real. God is real. We realize the privilege we have. We realize His holiness. We realize His power. We realize our sins are forgiven and we want to approach Him. We realize He still disciplines His people because He will not let them continue in high-handed sin because He loves them and He loves His church and He will be sanctified and glorified. His glory He will not give to another. So we want to be a people that comes to Him full of expectation for His power and presence among us coming often to confess our sins, asking Him to reveal our blind spots, repenting that times of refreshing may come, asking Him to pour out His power to do miracles of deliverance and grace. I would love for Him to just blow us away with salvation and blow us away with miracles of healing. That's all in His time and His purpose, but I would love for Him to just blow us away. This is a people that knows He's real, That we're walking, living, breathing, and moving places of worship and longs to see Jesus lifted high in every area of their life and every place that they are. This is a people that breathes in the word and breathes out prayer and feels themselves compelled by the Holy Spirit to be more holy, to tell others of the good news that our holy God has made a way for sinners to come into his presence by the blood of Jesus. Our God is a consuming fire in his holiness. 
Our God is a mighty fortress and our refuge and our strength by the blood of Jesus. He's both. Oh, that God would create what only he can, a very strange, devoted, generous, fearful, trembling, and supremely joyful people in the holy presence of their king. Let's take a couple minutes. I don't know your hearts. I don't know what part of this landed on you, but you do because you have the Holy Spirit in you. So take a few minutes. Let's go to the Lord together. Then I'll come back up and we'll eat and drink with him. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.